Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm Sleepy Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Sophia Grant about Lies in White Dresses, her third historical novel, although she also writes a range of genres as Sophie Littlefield. Our fantasy, carefully cultivated, no doubt, of the 1950s is that it was a decade of happy homemakers, supported by the hard-working corporate businessmen who married them out of college and fathered their children. But what happened to women whose wedding bell dreams faded over time in the reality of cheating husbands, crushed hopes, abusive marriages, and even boredom? We'll find out during the interview, but let's start with a brief introduction to Francie Meeker, one of Grant's protagonists. Chapter 1, Francie, May 1952. It couldn't be Margie because she would cry, and besides she might bring the children which would turn the whole thing into a circus. Jimmy hadn't come out and said it because he was trying to spare her feelings, but he was playing golf with his father today. The club had called to confirm their tea time. That left Alice, as usual. Mother, do you want the blue with the feather or the tan? Alice called from upstairs. She had skipped her painting class this morning to help Francie finish packing and to say goodbye to Vi. Vi's two boys worked for their father's publicity firm and all three of them were currently in the middle of the Mojave Desert, getting ready to launch a client's nuclear tourism business. It was just like Harry to leave his wife to make her shameful departure from an empty house, even when he was the one who'd smashed their sacred vows into smithereens. And now, please join me in welcoming Sophia Grant. Hi, Sophia. Thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you. I first encountered your writing with The Dress in the Window, your first Sophia Grant novel, but you have at least 20 books covering quite a wide range of genres published under the name Sophie Littlefield. How did you get started as an author, and what can you tell us about the Littlefield novels? Well, I've been writing since I was a child. Um, Literally, I remember writing my first novel at 11. Um, It was an apocalyptic novel, (laughs) Um, but I didn't really get started seriously submitting um, my finished works until my kids were in their teens. And I got an agent uh, back in about uh, 13 years ago now. And since then, I've just, you know, uh, been working full time as an author. Um, Let's see. I started by writing mysteries, and then I moved into thrillers and young adults. I did write an apocalyptic series, um, not the one I started when I was 11. Um, And then I uh, transitioned into sort of more commercial fiction, women's fiction, and then the historicals, um, which the way I started with that was I was traveling with a friend who, um, he's one of my very best friends, and we do book events together, or we used to back then when we were both writing mysteries. And we were, uh, we were traveling through near the um, Inyo Valley of California where Manzanar is set, the Japanese internment camp. And Julie started telling me the story of Japanese internment. And 
I grew up in Missouri and had never learned it in school. And so I went on to um, become really interested in it, gathered a ton of materials, and ended up uh, writing a novel about Japanese internment. And I got hooked on the researching, really. And um, also, I was sort of interested in the mid-century history. And so that's how I got my start. So I love the dress in the window, which rather surprised me because I'm not exactly a fashion buff, even though I love writing descriptions of the embroidery that some of my heroines produce. Fashion is not the only point of that novel, for sure, but it does provide the setting. Could you give us a capsule description of the book? And I think it's, you know, you mentioned in the back that the fashion and the fabrics and so on are a particular interest of yours. So could you explain that a little bit, too? Sure. Well, I grew up sewing. My mother and grandmother uh, sewed all of their clothes. And so I I have experienced sewing just about everything from drapery to my wedding dress to, you know, garments and quilts and so forth. So I'm very interested in textiles and sewing. Uh, the book itself is about three women who are forced to live together after the war because each of them has lost uh, a man. Um one lost a fiance, her sister lost her husband, and she, the, the mother of the um, husband is the third person who takes the sisters in. Um, the, there is one child in the book. Um, it, it's the, um, the woman who is married. It's her child, and they all three share uh, child care duties. They have no money at all, and in the course of the book, they take over the operation of the sister's father's defunct mill, um, and that gets them into the fashion industry. You've also published The Daisy Children. Is that the book that's set during, in the internment camp? No, no. Um, the, that, the internment camp book was uh, close to a decade ago, and it was with another publisher. Um, I, was, I didn't know that I would have another opportunity to write historical fiction until uh, the, until Dress in the Window came out a few years ago. So Daisy Children was actually about an event that took place in the 1930s that is the worst school disaster in American history. And what happened was that in Texas, during the Texas oil boom of the 30s, uh, a brand new and very nice school uh, was uh, powered by uh, the, the, uh, the, the gas byproduct of the of the oil rigs and it collected in the basement of the school and exploded and nearly well basically an entire generation of children was lost and uh, the book is about how the town and uh, individuals recovered from that and particularly about the women who went on to have more children Um, and the book spans four generations and sort of the effects that generationally happen with the replacement children. And I use that with quotes, but that was um, sort of the attitude of the town about these new children was that they were replacements. And that sounds like a really compelling, but in many ways, horrifying story. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was obviously quite a tragedy, but because I work in future generations of that same family, I was able to introduce lighter parts to and what drew you to the story that became Lies in White Dresses? Well, the same friend I mentioned who introduced me to the history of Japanese internment on another book trip, we were traveling 
uh, to Reno, and I wasn't familiar with Reno at all at that point. I, I'm not a California native. Um, so Julie started telling me the history of the place. Her father lived there, so she knew the town. And I, of course, had heard of Reno divorces, and all I knew about them is that they were tawdry, and I, I had in my mind that they weren't actually even legitimate. But um, what I learned from Julie and then from further research is that uh, basically making divorce easy to attain really allowed Reno to recover from the depression, the great depression economically, along with the culture of gambling. So it was really interesting to kind of learn how Reno came to be that town. And then I um, came up with the story to use that as a setting. Mm -hmm. It's a great title. Where does it come from? Well, there's the three women, there's three women in the story who go to Reno to obtain divorces. And all three of them have left marriages that were in some way either illegitimate or um, oppressive. And so there's a conversation in the book where two of the women discuss how marriage can actually be a lie or that it offers a lie in that era because women of the era were really encouraged to think of marriage as their only viable option. And they prepared for it throughout their childhood and young womanhood. And they were entering a sort of contract in which uh, men, well, they, they would take their vows and, and make promises to each other. Men would su support them and they would take care of hearth and home. But the bargain for these three women did not, it was, the result wasn't at all what they expected. But I also have, I mean, I think that all sounds quite ominous and depressing, but I hope that I also provided hope and optimism and also injected a true belief in long-term happy bonds. And I have some examples of happy relationships in the book as well. Oh, yes, I think you did do. It's, it's a very balanced portrayal. All the characters are, you know, very rich and well-rounded. And that brings me to Francie, who opens the book. So let's start with her. What is her situation? Um, you've mentioned the general situation, but what is her specific situation at the beginning of the novel? Where is she emotionally as well as physically um, in the passage that I read? So Francie um, was born to a wealthy family in San Francisco. Um, and so she's inherited a great deal and she marries a handsome young, uh, pilot, um, from after the war or while he's training for the war. And, um, and they, they move to a very affluent part of San Francisco and they make a life there. They have, uh, children together. Uh, he has a business, um, but a lot of their money comes from her inheritance. And um, I would say that she's, she's very devoted to her children, but she's also feisty. Um, she's committed to family life, but also to the life of society and wealth. Um, and she's also, I would say, a fairly optimistic and happy person. And then I would say also she's in her 50s um, when the novel starts. Actually, I think she's 49. And um, she's sort of accepted middle age with equanimity. Um, you know, she's heavier than she'd like to be, perhaps doesn't spend as much time on her appearance as some of her peers. But overall, she is content, other than the fact that she's getting divorced. 
Her good friend Vi Carruthers uh, accompanies Francie on the journey to Reno. And Vi's story is, I mean, in some ways it's similar, but it's a little bit different. What is her um, background and what kind of person is she relative to Francie as well as in her own person? Uh, Vi grew up in Reno, which is one of the, uh, she and Francie have actually talked about making a trip to Reno to visit her parents' graves, um, perhaps connect with family for quite some time, but they actually never made it happen. Um, she grew up with very modest circumstances um, and then met her husband uh, as, you know, a young woman um, and moved to San Francisco and, you know, entered this life that was brand new to her, a life of wealth and privilege. And she met Francie because they lived across the street from each other and Francie had a newborn and I was pregnant with her first child. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I had, I had friendships that developed in that stage of my own life. So I sort of modeled their friendship after that in the sense that, you know, when I had little children, I made friends with my neighbors and we spent a lot of time together. Vi is um, perhaps more cautious than Francie. She's a bit of a fish out of water um, in this, you know, uh, a high society, wealth-driven uh, community that she's in. She's Catholic and goes to Mass every morning. She's uh, extremely devoted to her family, especially her sons, who are now grown. Um, she's She's more serious than Francie, a bit long-suffering, and she's very kind and compassionate. And she initially doesn't want a divorce. Um, we won't say why she abruptly changes her mind, because that would be a spoiler, but she does, in fact, abruptly change her mind from Francie's point of view. That's right. And actually, that's sort of an interesting thing about their friendship, and I think friendships of that era, or relationships of that era, is that despite the fact that they are truly devoted to each other and the very best of friends, they don't always confide things, in, uh, especially shameful secrets. They don't confide in each other. Um, I think nowadays, um, certainly that has changed, I would say, for the much better. But sometimes it's hard to remember, especially for younger people today, that there was such, a, such an atmosphere of... Uh, mm, really wanting to protect one's family reputation and one's individual reputation. And also it was an era where so many things were considered shameful that no longer are. And so that affected their relationship as well. Now in the age of social media, you know, everything is out there, right? And but when I was growing up too, it wasn't like that. And people were much more reluctant, even journalists and politicians were much more reluctant to talk about private affairs. Oh, definitely. And I'm <laughs> including real affairs, you know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Isn't that the truth? Um, I'm in my mid fifties now. So I have this perspective. It's sort of funny. I sometimes forget. Well, I often forget that I'm in my mid fifties. And then um, I have many younger friends and I realize sometimes that I have to give them a little context for the stories I'm telling because they are now, you know, quite, removed from history. I mean, I think another thing that sort of informed the novel was an empty nester, what that meant for women of that era. And that's absolutely very different from how it is today. I mean, I, I think so many of us approach our, you know, children leaving um, and are very excited to start new careers. Um, that certainly was not available to the women 
um, of the era that the book takes place. And so Vi and Francie, you know, are embarking on a new life, a divorced life, without the ability to imagine entirely new futures as someone might today. And so that also is something that informs their friendship and their decisions. And it expresses a kind of courage in them because they're really going into a new world in a way. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, I tried to be very aware of the fact that they had the privilege of wealth. And so that meant that they were able to make choices where, you know, there's one other woman in the book who is escaping an abusive marriage and has nothing, has no money. And she also has a small daughter. So her, her options, although she's younger and, you know, so that gives her a different kind of privilege, I suppose. But um, her options were very limited compared to Francie and Vi in some ways. And I, she was the next person I wanted to talk about, so I'm glad you brought <laughs> her up. Um, her name is June Samples, or at least that's the name she's traveling under. And um, what is her story and what convinces Vi to take uh, June and her daughter under her wing, basically? Well, June, as I mentioned, was fleeing a a um, abusive marriage. Um, she married very young. She um, was perhaps naive. Uh, her husband is not successful, even even in the context of his, you know, sort of blue collar profession. He gets fired a lot. He has an anger problem. So um, she's basically just been holding the family together as best she can um, until it just becomes untenable, and she's fearing for her daughters. Um, safety and then she flees Um, but she's also very afraid that her husband will pursue her and while she doesn't share any of that with the women they actually meet on a train en route to um, Reno and of course she doesn't tell them you know because of what we were just talking about um, shame and and all of that she doesn't really tell them but the other two women are able to figure it out based on a few clues and also the appearance of some bruises on her arms and um, I think that Vi is not only just a basically kind and compassionate person, but I was also thinking of her, you know, she's a very devout Catholic, and in that role, um, she probably was exposed to various kinds of philanthropy and the idea that we're, you know, we are in service. So I think those are the things that made her so quickly take her under her wing. And also she was able, you know, she had an extra room, she she'd booked a suite, and uh, she had wealth, and, you know, it wasn't really, it, you know, wasn't difficult for her to make that offer. So why Francie and June end up at the Holiday Ranch Hotel, where they meet Mrs. Swanson and one of my favorite characters, uh, her daughter, Virgie, who fancies herself a budding detective. So tell us about them, uh, including their relationship as mother and daughter, which is, I think, not seamless. Yes. <laughs> well, um, Mrs. Swanson is herself a divorcee, and um, so I took some liberties with the ranch. The ranches uh, did exist, but they were typically on the outskirts or or outside of town. I placed mine right in town. Um, And so women did run some of these um, institutions and, you know, establishments. Um, So that wasn't really a stretch. Um, She does it on her own. So she's a very busy woman, probably a very tough woman, especially as um, typically the proprietors of ranches and hotels were the, were the people who acted as witnesses for the divorce. And so they had to really be very firm, tough, 
they just had to, they had a lot of, juggle a lot of balls, I guess. So uh, Mrs. Swanson's very busy. Virgie, on the other hand, is, um, is by nature is just a curious, active, um, intelligent girl, enterprising. She's, she helps her mother in the hotel because her mother insists that she does, but also she's very enterprising and she um, finds ways to make money by running errands for the ladies. Um, and she's a, she's a bit of a spy. Uh, she's nosy and she reads Nancy Drew and she's read some other uh, detective novels and so forth. And her dearest wish is to grow up and open her own detective agency. Um, and, and sometimes it's at cross purposes with her mother who doesn't really want her um, customers to be, you know, annoyed by this girl who's nosing about um but Virgie finds ways to kind of get around that. And I think they are, I think they are close. They're just sort of, it's an odd situation because Virgie is basically raising herself. It reminded me a little bit of that old show, The Love Boat. Do you remember that show? Yes, I do. And there was a young woman on that show, and I don't remember her name. And she basically has, you know, she's encountering the the guests on the on the cruise ship and sort of making relationships with them and Virgie sort of does the same thing with the women who come to stay for six weeks in the hotel because I I should have mentioned before six weeks was the residency requirement and so women were obligated to stay in Reno for six weeks before they could get their divorce decrees. Yes I'm glad you brought that up because as you were talking I was thinking that we hadn't clarified that that they can't just blow into Reno and get a divorce and go home. And and I think, you know, Virgie is, what, 12 years old? So I think 12-year-old girls and their mothers are always a little, I mean, they love each other dearly, but they're always a little bit at odds. Yes, I think that's very much the case. Reno, um, what was Reno like in 1952? Um, it has nightclubs and it has bars. And so it's it represents kind of a freedom for these women, at least in the beginning. So um, tell us about the place. Well, it's, it was oh, it's so fascinating. I wish I wish I could go back in time. I would love that to spend 24 hours there. So um, in the 30s, when uh, the the divorce was made easy in the 30s, at around the same time that um, gambling was legalized and prohibition ended. And so at that time, Reno made some very key uh, choices. They they allowed um, or encouraged. Uh, uh, nightclubs, gambling clubs, casinos to be built near the courthouse or, you know, some of that was just by happenstance because it's all in the downtown area. But um, they made it sort of easy for the divorce economy to thrive. And at the same time, gambling, both in parallel and, you know, there was some interaction between the women and the gambling. So they, um, some of the hotels offered things like gambling classes for ladies, teaching them how to play roulette and craps. And um, most of the hotels offered excursions and outings that might include things like, oh, you know, shows at the casinos or luncheons. Um, the official gatherings were perhaps a bit more ladylike and, um, you know, not that outside of what was going on in the rest of the country. But in the evenings, ladies could find all kinds of entertainment. They could go to saloons. They could um, sing and dance. Um, they could dance with each other. But there were also, you know, there were men in town that um, there were more than a few romances that developed during those six weeks. Um, they could get jobs that were maybe, you know, for women who didn't have means, they would often get jobs 
and the jobs were available because of the economy. So they could work as laundresses or waitresses or maids or even ranch hands. Um, and then while, while they had to work very hard to sort of keep their cover because if they were found to be, for instance, housing a lover nearby, um, that would get in the way of their qualifying for a divorce. They had to be very careful, but there was also a lot of nudging and winking and there were, that's when the wedding chapels uh, popped up. So a, a lady might bring her cousin to town or her brother, and I'm using quotes, and then, um, you know, as a male escort, there's someone to look after her. But then the minute that she got her divorce, she was free to marry this gentleman who had been playing the role. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of, um, there's some wonderful photos of ladies carousing in the bars. And um, for, to my eye, it looks like they were genuinely having a lot of fun. And uh, I'm sort of glad for them that that was available, given the strictures that they faced when they went home. That's a good point. Um, so we're going to move from that because they were having a lot of fun. Uh, but quite early in the novel, Vi is found dead. Um, and Virgie's detective instincts come to the fore. Um, we don't want to take this too far because what happens to Vi is a big part of the plot. But... Um, could you set up the situation for us? What do the police think has happened and what do Francie and the others suspect? Yes. Yeah, so the evening that um, it's early in their stay in Reno that, that Vi dies and they've actually employed Virgie as a babysitter that evening so that the ladies can go all, all go out to dinner. And so in the process of babysitting June's young daughter, Patty, Virgie does some snooping and she comes to what turn out to be some mistaken conclusions um, later based on what she sees that night. And so she, she's young and, and naive and she, she sort of goes down some wrong paths later. Um, now the police come and um, they believe that the death was a suicide, but suicide was not talked about in those eras in that era. Um, it was considered very shameful, especially for a Catholic um, person. So the police give an out. Um, they, they find, they use language to, um, to allow the ladies to say that the death was accidental. Francie believes the death was accidental um, as does uh, her vice husband and, others, um, others in the family. So there's, there's a lot of mystery around it. Um, and it's, it's hard to know. It really is hard to know. And I don't think anybody ever does know definitively what happened. Uh, obviously forensics aren't, weren't then what they are today. And, um, because of the, um, I don't think it would have been very thoroughly investigated because of that, um, because of that suicide angle. And what does Virgie imagine happened? So she thinks it was a murder. Um, and she thinks that there was an accomplice. Um, she believes that June has come in order to steal from the wealthy ladies and sort of inveigled her way into their friendship. And that she and her accomplice are or have stolen um, from the ladies. And that when she was about to be found out, she murdered uh, what what made you decide to to how should I put this focus the story around Vi's death? I mean, what what is its literary purpose? Well, you know, it, when you when you look at the 
tipping into story world, you know, the, the outset of a novel, basically you've got people going from ordinary circumstances into extraordinary circumstances. And the, while the divorce itself would certainly have been that, um, you know, for these three women, um, I, of course, being me, wanted to take it further and put them in an, emotion, an emotionally more taxing place. And um, so one of the things that I often say when I'm teaching writing is that you want to take your characters to a cliff, push them off it, and when they're clinging with their fingers, you want to step on their fingers because you really want to create as much um, emotional investment as possible. So losing one's best friend is a devastation. Um, the family that's left behind obviously has, and emotion, you know, great emotional distress. And it also allows for, you know, a lot of red herrings like the murders and uh, the, the murder that, that Virgie imagines is, um, has taken place. And also because I took, you know, my early training was in mystery, writing mysteries. Um, I'm sort of used to starting a story with a body. I hate to say it, but I'm just, you know, that's sort of ingrained in me. So um, uh, twice now I've actually as an aside, written other novels that had a murder subplot that was later taken out because it had no place in the book. <laughs> so um, in this case, it did work, though. Oh, it definitely did. I was laughing while you were talking, not because it was funny what you were saying, but because I just got an email from someone who read a better version of one of my novels, and she said, you're so mean to your characters. <laughs> <laughs> did you tell her that's our job? <laughs> Right, exactly. It took me years to learn that, you know, because most of us start yeah. out being way too nice to our characters. Oh, right. I know. I So, yeah, my first five unpublished novels, well, actually, I wrote eight novels before I, my ninth was published, and I think I was much too kind to my characters. Right. So, um, so far, we've talked almost entirely about the women in these dissolving marriages. Is there anything that you wanted to share about the husbands uh, or children? Yeah, I um I had so I had a lot of fun with this book. I um one one thing that was so fascinating and not a lot of it made it into the novel, unfortunately. Well, maybe another novel will take place sometime. But um, Vi's husband has a promotion business, and when the novel takes place, he's promoting nuclear tourism, which uh, took place in the desert uh, about an hour outside of Las Vegas during that era. And they, there were these, and they were these uh, people who would have businesses taking tourists out into the desert to viewing platforms so that they could watch nuclear detonations, mushroom clouds from a distance. Um, and I just found that completely fascinating. I had to sort of jimmy it into the story. You know, it wasn't an entirely natural fit, but I, I, was, I was tickled by having it there. Oh, but it worked. It really worked. I mean, I couldn't believe it either. I mean, I was thinking, were they nuts? <laughs> <laughs> but it does work because it, because it makes him, uh, I mean, it really underlines his character because of the moment when he's doing it, you know, in the story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, it also gave me a way for his sons to work with him, which was something else that I, you know, I thought, I was trying to think about Vi, who, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler at all to say that her husband, her her marriage was not a happy one, um, but her sons had gone to work for him. So, you know, that put her in a spot where, you know, she was supporting all three of them, obviously. But um, I just thought that might have been a difficult thing for her. 
Another relationship that I enjoyed writing was um, uh, Francie has three grown children, the youngest of whom has a minor disability. And for that reason, Francie early on decided that she was unmarriageable and, you know, sort of kept her in the home. Um, they were, their station in society meant that this young woman, Alice, would not work in Francie's estimation. And so they developed, Francie is a bit controlling and codependent and loves Alice with all her heart. But she sort of created a situation for Alice where she limited her options unintentionally. And Alice is, when she comes into the book, is sort of developing a mind of her own and wanting to escape that. So I really enjoyed writing that. Um, there's, I enjoyed writing Arthur, Francie's husband, but um, there's some spoilers there, so I won't go into that too much. And then Charlie, who ends up, um, Charlie is Spy's uh, younger son. And again, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that there's a romantic subplot with him in June. And I will almost say about Charlie is that he is my romantic hero. Every time I wrote a romantic hero, that he they have certain things in common, and that would be Charlie. Um, uh, he's he's affable, kind, heartfelt, and also burly and good with tools. <laughs> and now you know if you ever want to set me up on a date, you know who I'm looking for. I like a man <laughs> that can fix things. <laughs> Your husband will like to hear that, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, well, I divorced him. Oh, <laughs> so okay. I, I <laughs> well, then he doesn't have a point of view. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what would you like readers to take away from Lies in White Dresses? Oh, wow. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could just explore that era together? But since that's not possible, um, you know, I think what I would like to take away is what I try to do with my historical novels is to provide a woman's perspective on a certain era and an honest look at whatever challenges that era presented for women. And so I've had some really, really nice discussions with young readers about um, what it must have been like to have fewer options than we do today in so many ways. And what being a member of society meant. That's another thing I've gotten sort of interested in in the past few years is, is class, um, class distinctions in prior eras and, and how that both limited and gave opportunities to people. So I just, I mean, overall, I would say it was just a wonderfully fun exploration of an era, but also a very specific place, because I I, I would say there is no other city like Reno, and um, especially Reno self-styling itself as this sort of thin city, um, but very, doing so in a very clear-eyed fashion to save itself, really. So I, I guess, does that answer the question? I, I don't know. Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was just, it was it was one of my favorite books to write. It was pure fun. It came out just uh, earlier this month. So, are you already working on something else? I am. I'm um, working on a story. I'm moving a little bit further forward in time, into the ni- early 1960s, and I'm writing a book about young stewardesses living together and what that life was like. So it's it's a little bit of a nudge forward, both from a fashion perspective, um, obviously, and also, you know, changing uh, attitudes and mores. So I'm really excited about that, too. Well, I wish you the best of success. And thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, 
a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Sophia Grant about lies in white dresses. Find out more about her at www.sophiagrant.com and sophielittlefield.com. You can also find a written Q&A that I did with her on my blog in 2017 at blog.cplesley.com slash 2017 slash 08 interview hyphen with hyphen sophia hyphen grant dot html. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.